Good morning, College Park. It's a small wooden sign that's painted yellow with blue letters. And you'd find it if you went down the hallway in a locker room just before you went out on the field. And the sign looks like this. Play like a champion today. Do you know where you'd find this sign? Where is that? Notre Dame. All right. Some graduates over there, they found their rally. Now you know why you came to church today, right? So play like a champion today. You know the history behind this sign? So it was Lou Holtz, a football coach at Notre Dame from 86 to 96, who was doing some research on the Notre Dame football program, and he found this saying in the uh, records of um, Notre Dame football history. He liked it so much that he had a sign made, had it put there in the hallway just before you make your way out to the field, just under all of the national championships. And I'm sure you've seen the footage before, that as the players go out on the field, they start a tradition. As they began to run out on the field, they slap the sign, sort of this definitive statement that, yes, I will play like a champion today. It became a, a bit of a moniker or a motto, if you will, for the team. And in fact, it was so significant for the team that Holtz made another sign that they took with them whenever they traveled, like to University of Michigan or something like that. And then they would, they would hit that sign and hope that it would give them greater success than what they've had in years past. No, I'm just kidding. So... Um, <laughs> That, that they would have success as they played their football game. So Holtz, reflecting on the significance of the sign, said this, regardless of our win-loss record, regardless of the problems that you have when you walk out on that field, you have an obligation to your teammates and to the fans to play to the best of your ability. You are to play like a champion. If you were to take that sign, play like a champion today, and you were to think about what type, type of phrase would be Timothy's rallying cry, what, what type of statement would the Apostle Paul want Timothy to hit as he went out under the game? It would be this singular statement that he is to fight the good fight. That's where we are in 1 Timothy 6. This signature statement that Paul gives Timothy, these words, fight the good fight. He's, he's warned Timothy about the false teachers, their pride, their greed, their, their, their love of money. And he wants Timothy to heed this call to fight Fight the good fight of faith. Sort of like when you put your hand in a huddle before the team goes out. Let's go. Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. So today is the uh, 22nd message in our study of this uh, glorious book. We're beginning to wrap up our series. We'll be done with it by the end of May. And then in June, we'll move into a new series on the book of Psalms with some tough questions. It'll be titled, Honest to God, Tough Questions from the Psalms. You know there's some tough questions in the Psalms. Questions like, why have you forsaken me, O Lord? Or how long, O Lord? Or why so downcast? And the aim of this particular series is to try and help you think through how to think when you experience suffering. Because here's the deal. I promise you, at one point in time in your life, there will come a time when the bottom's going to drop out. And when that happens, if it hasn't happened yet, you just haven't lived long enough. It will happen. And when that happens, what you think and how you think and how you think biblically is incredibly important. We want to talk about that and try and help us know how to think through the book of Psalms. Then in August, we'll take our Live 12 series again. And this year, we're talking about the subject of battling temptation or the mortification of sin. How do you get serious about dealing with temptations? We'll embed that into all of our small groups. And then in the fall, we'll jump into a major new series that'll take us through 2013 and even into 14 on the subject of the book of Exodus. So that's where we're going to be heading. 
Now, the text in front of us today is a pretty intense passage. Fight the good fight of faith. And in this context of verses 11 to 16, Paul gives Timothy essentially three different things to think about. In the first place, about who he is as the man of God. Secondly, what he is commanded to do. There'll be five things that he's commanded, five imperatives. And then finally, what is he to live for? So he calls Timothy to understand who he is, what he's called to do, what he's commanded to do, and then what he is living for. And I want to look at these today and see what we can apply in our own hearts and our lives. So the first thing we see is that he tells Timothy who he is. And who is he? He is a man of God. Look at verse 11. But as for you, O man of God. So he starts with this. But as for you. Here's the contrast. Timothy, the, the false teachers are this way, but as for you, there's supposed to be this, this difference, and this is a, a familiar way for Paul to phrase this in the pastoral epistles. Listen to 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3. He says this, But the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Here it comes. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. So there is this sense that there is to be a contrast between Timothy's life and the life of those false teachers. This is really important for us just to get at the outset that what God wants for his leaders and for all those who name his name is to be somehow different than the rest of the world. And in the midst of a culture that prizes tolerance in everything and that everybody's always just get along and everyone's heading all the same direction, God needs people people to not only be known what they're for, but also to be known in some respect for what they are against. That Jesus says there's one way to life, and there are few that find it. This is especially true in regards to the character and the conduct of his life. So, but as for you. So who are you, Timothy? As for you. And then he uses this title, this kind of an old school title. He calls him Man of God. He says, but as for you, O man of God. Now, some of you may have grown up in a tradition where that's what they, they, they call the pastor. You grew up in that tradition? Call him the man of God. In fact, you always had to drop your voice when you said that. He's the man of God, right? He's the man of God, right? See, not the man of God. No, man of God. So you had to get it down. He's the man of God. And the idea was this, that there is this person through whom God speaks. This title is... Um, not all that familiar in the New Testament, but it certainly is there in the Old Testament. It has a rich heritage. For example, um, God's servants or his agents were called men of God. Samuel, um, David, Moses, Elijah, Elisha. And who were these people? The, the, these were the men upon whom God placed the mantle of representing him. Upon whom he required that they speak his words to his people. The kind of people who, upon whom God put this calling to point people to God's truth. So a man of God is in essence a representative of God and a proclaimer of His Word. And what the word, what the phrase kind of means is this sense that God speaks through His Word. He speaks through this book. But in particular, he uses explaining God's Word in order to enact or create spiritual transformation. And I hope you understand what I mean by this. It's that undefinable moment when you know, okay, this is the Word of God, 
coming through a person. There's a physical voice, a physical person, but this is God speaking to me. You ever had that happen? I hope so. I mean, I have been sitting in the audience and I know there's a man up there speaking, but this is God speaking right to my soul. It's the thing that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 when he says this, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. It's, it's the kind of moment that one of my heroes, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the pastor at Westminster Chapel in London, he called it unction. Unction. And, and by that he means this, that there are times when entirely outside of his own control, he is given a special authority, a special power, an unction which is unusual. This then is the dual action of the Spirit. He takes the preacher, the speaker, whether in a pulpit or in private, and gives this enabling. Then the Holy Spirit acts on the ones who are listening and deals with their minds and hearts and wills, and both things happen at the same time. This is glorious when it takes place, that suddenly God comes upon a person, and by their very speaking, God's Word takes active agency in the heart and life of a person. This could happen in a preaching moment, in a Sunday school moment. It could happen in a small group moment. It could happen in a one-on-one counseling moment. And if you have ever tasted this and seen this, it is a glorious almost addictive reality that you see the Word of God transmitted through your voice, taking the Word of God, and suddenly lightning strikes and the person begins to see the beauty of the Gospel and begins to change. It is a glorious reality. There is nothing greater for both the communicator or the listener than knowing that, oh my word, God is here. And even if you're not a full-time pastor, even if you're disinvolved in a counseling scenario or giving instructions to your children and suddenly the light bulb comes on you know you're disciplining them you're trying to get them to see something they don't see it and finally you give a verse of scripture and they're like oh i see it two weeks ago i met a man who was hanging out in our office reception area and he was with a college park um, church member, and he, he had been gloriously converted on a business trip by one of our College Park church members, and they were standing there, and they told me the story, and they had won an award, a sales award together, and so they got to go on this trip, and the company assigned room assignments, and this guy had told his wife, that man, I hope I don't have to room with so-and-so, the College Park church member, because that's going to ruin my time, right? I was like, yeah, way to go, man. So apparently he's known for righteousness. And he was like, I don't want, that's going to be a bummer trip. Sure enough, God and his providence orchestrated that they were rooming together. And as they were rooming together, this brother who's a part of our fellowship took the opportunity to share Christ with this guy. And he gloriously is converted in that hotel room. And he's hanging out in this reception area and he is full of joy telling me this. He's like, yeah, I don't want to room with that guy because he's righteous. And then he shares the gospel with me and here I am and I got saved. And so he's excited. The guy from College Park is excited. I'm excited. I'm like, yes, this is what this is all about. When the Word of God comes in power, both are able to witness the beauty and the joy of it. So this is the calling upon Timothy's life. So Paul reminds him. Notice he says, but you, O man of God. Notice here, friends, that he reminds Timothy what is the call upon his life. And granted, Timothy had a special calling on his life, but we're all called to something, aren't we? 
You've got a calling on your life. I've got a calling on my life. And the beautiful thing about when God calls you to do something, it could be God's called you just to, to be a mother, to, to, to parent your children. He could call you to, to witness to a, a neighbor. He could call you to be involved in a difficult area of ministry. He could call you to be involved in things like, um, that Krista mentioned before, like safe families, being involved in some sort of mission endeavor. The, the important thing is, is that you know your calling, and here's why. Because when things get really difficult and things get really hard, you go back to your calling. You're like, look, I was called by God to do this. This is, this is who I am. I can't not do this. And this calling, this identification, if you will, with God's sovereign empowerment in and through you becomes the thing that helps navigate you through very difficult waters. And it's the thing that helps keep you in the fight over the long haul. For you to realize, look, God's called me to this. And if God's called me, he's going to help show us a way. So Timothy, for the sake of fighting for truth and perseverance, needed to be reminded about who he was. But you, oh man of God, that's who he was or who he is. Secondly, we're shown here what he is called to do. And there's five imperatives. Paul, in classic Pauline form, first talks about who Timothy is in terms of his identity, and then strings five imperatives as to what he is to do. And the first one, write this down, is this. He is to flee the wrong things. The word flee is the Greek word fugo, from which we get our English word fugitive, and it means to aggressively avoid. Write that down or underline that in the notes. Aggressively avoid. Not just avoid, but aggressively avoid. The word is used in Matthew 24, uh, verses 16 and 20, to describe the fleeing of people from God's judgment at the end of ages. And the idea is that there is no casualness to this flight. And Paul uses this word to describe what Timothy is to do in terms of his personal righteousness, that he is to aggressively avoid the wrong things. Well, what is he to flee from? Paul says, these things. NIV renders this as flee from all this. Well, just think about what we've learned about the false teachers. He's to flee from bad doctrine, their, their, their sinful attitudes, their conceited pride. He's to flee from their, to flee from their greed from their spiritual pride, from their love of money. Paul has told Timothy all about the false teachers, and what Timothy should be now is soberly scared. He should see what could happen. And as a result, he should aggressively avoid being around the wrong things. If Timothy really understands the dangers, if he really understands what's at stake, then he will intentionally avoid the things that could be problematic. He needed to have a healthy sense of fear. The present tense indicates that this should be continual. Always on guard, always ready to flee. Listen to me very carefully, especially if you're a, a teenager or you're a child. Look, don't, don't do anything else for the next two minutes. Just look right at me because I want to speak to you as a dad, as a pastor. I've only been alive 41 years, but I've seen some things. And I want you to understand something, that there are some sins that you just seriously need to run from. And I mean physically run from. You don't go there, you don't hang out there, and if you find yourself there and you're like, whoa, you get out. And you call somebody, but you get out. You don't argue, you don't discuss, you don't analyze, you don't think through, you just get 
out. Because there are some sins that you can beat with an argument, and there are other sins that you just beat with speed. You just get out, right? Just get out. In fact, you want a verse? Real easy to remember, young people. 2 Timothy 2.22. 2, 2, 2. 2 Timothy 2.22. It says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. 1 Corinthians 6.18. Here's another one. Flee from sexual immorality. Just get out. Just get out. Don't go there. Don't hang around there. Don't look there. Just get out. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, flee from idolatry. Or Solomon in the book of Proverbs, chapter 5, 6, and 7, particularly talks about the idiocy of a person who continually goes to the wrong path, walks closer and closer and closer to the wrong house, and then wonders, how come I fell morally? Duh, you're on the wrong path, pal. You walk on the other side of the road. This is what it says. It doesn't say duh, just so you know, but it says this. It says, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. So again, he's to flee from certain things. There's great wisdom here, friends. We need to take seriously the call of this command to flee the wrong things. Again, there are some sins you beat with an argument. There are others you just beat with speed. You get out. Number two, he calls Timothy to pursue the right things. So it's not enough for him just to flee from the wrong things. He's got to put the right things in. So it's not just enough to avoid doing the wrong things. He's got to reorient his heart such that he begins doing the things that God calls him to do. So the reality is, listen, you haven't really repented of a sin when you've stopped doing the wrong things. Repentance means that you replace it with godly actions. There's this put-off, put-on paradigm in the Scripture. You're not only called to put off certain things, you're to put on new things. So repentance isn't just stop doing bad things. Repentance means you start doing new things. That's when transformation really happens. In fact, in my premarital counseling in our home, we say this all the time. When does a liar stop being a liar? When he stops telling lies? No. When he starts telling the truth. That's when a liar stops being a liar. You replace any sin in either of those categories with the put off and the put on and the equation works. Therefore, Timothy is to be filled with the kind of attitudes and actions that fit with the fruit of the Spirit. He is to pursue the right things. It says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So that the leaning of his life, he's to lean in, he's to sow to the Spirit. You know, Galatians uses this, uh, this farming metaphor in Galatians chapter 6, that whoever sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It's not complicated. It essentially is this, if you don't plant grass seed, you're not going to grow grass in your lawn. And if you don't plant spiritual realities in your soul through scripture memorization, through the reading of God's word, times of prayer, hanging around with godly people, you start putting good stuff in and it's remarkable. Suddenly good fruit starts to be born. You start putting bad stuff in. Don't be surprised if your mind's going all over the place. You're heading the wrong things. You're heading down the wrong path. You're talking about the wrong things, thinking about the wrong things, hanging around with the wrong people. It's not rocket science. You sow to the flesh, you reap the flesh. You sow to the Spirit, you reap the Spirit. It's that simple. And then why is it, though, that we don't understand that? Well, we understand it, I guess, but we don't live that way. Paul says to Timothy, look, flee the wrong things and pursue the right things. And then look at the list of what he's supposed to pursue. 
He's supposed to pursue righteousness, which means a life marked by obedience. Godliness. Godliness means inner attitudes and motivations. It means who you really are. John Owen, in his 15th century book called The Mortification of Sin, a book that we're going to parallel in Live 12 on how to fight sin, Owen says this, A minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. Godliness. Faith is the next one. Faith means not just faith in terms of salvation, where one puts their faith in Christ, but faith in terms of living in a trusting relationship, hoping in God, hoping in God's promise all the time. Love, an intentional and chosen affection for others. Steadfastness. Here's another one. He's to pursue steadfastness. The Greek word is hupomone. It means to bear up under. A really important word. It means that in the midst of hardships and difficulty that you have an indomitable spirit of hope and enjoy. Uh, it's the kind of spirit expressed in 2 Corinthians 4. I love this text. 4.1. Paul says this, So we do not lose heart. Are you here today? You've lost heart? The Bible says don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. How? Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. It's just a matter of perspective. And then finally, gentleness. You know what gentleness is? Gentleness is patience with difficult people. You got difficult people in your life? You ought to thank God for them. You know why? Because they make you gentle. I mean, seriously, if you didn't have hard people in your life, you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have the ability or the opportunity to practice gentleness all the time. So you've got crass, rude, difficult people in your life. When you see them coming, you have, thank God I got an opportunity to be gentle right now. Here they come. Watch this, God. Here I go. God, help me, help me, help me. Just don't ever tell them why they're in your life, okay? Just don't don't tell them that. You know. So we have this idea here of pursuing the right things. Third, Paul says to Timothy, fight for perseverance. Verse 12, here it is. This is the sign-slapping moment. Fight the good fight of the faith. He, He clearly indicates that there's a struggle that's going on here. The word fight is agonizomai. You can hear the word agony in it. The idea that Paul uses is a, a metaphor of a runner or of boxing. Those of you who have competed athletically know what he's talking about. There comes a point in the midst of a competition where your body is telling you to stop or you kind of hit the wall. Or those of you who ran in the mini yesterday, you're like, oh, it's so hot going around that track and it's just, you want to stop and yet you keep pressing on. Athletics helps you to understand this push through where a coach would say, look, fight through it. It demands rugged commitment to not quit. And so the call is for perseverance, even though it is a struggle. You know, when we were in Kenya, if you're going to be in Kenya, you've got to at least run something somewhere, right? And so, I, uh, I, by the way, we ran into a, a world-class runner. We were at a church and introduced this guy and found out he was a runner. So just being nice, I just said, hey, what's your personal record? He said, yeah, two hours and seven minutes. I was like, whoa. And he took fifth in the Chicago Marathon a couple years ago. This guy could fly. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go 
run 1.5 miles. And so that's what I did. And so I just ran around the, the, the place, the seminary that we were at. And I was just, I was sucking air so bad. I got back to our room. And Jeremiah was with me and Nate and Marty. And they were, are you all right? They could hear me huffing and breathing. <gasps> you know, just sucking air. I feel, I feel like I'm just completely out of shape. And then I find out we're a mile high and it's, it's an altitude issue. I'm actually in great shape. It's just the low, so I felt a lot better. So. I was, I was in agony though. I was, I was just like, couldn't breathe. I'm like, what's wrong with me? I'm, I, I'm dying. You know, I'm thinking I'm just, I'm, I'm on that downhill slow to, slide toward death. I mean, it's coming. You know, it, when you run, you fight through those things. You persevere. Same thing in your soul as it relates to your battle to fight the fight of faith. You persevere. You got hard things going on in your life. Don't, don't be one of those Christians that are like, Oh, I got hard things. Yeah, you do. Life's hard. Just get over it and fight through it. Fight for perseverance. Number four, I love this. Live for eternity. All this is good. He says, next, take hold of eternal life. Just, just think of that. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So he says, Timothy, look, you were called to this eternal life. What does that mean? It means that God had redeemed Timothy. Timothy came to the understanding. This is how one receives eternal life. You've never understood this before. It means that Timothy received eternal life because he knew that he was a sinner. He received Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. God called him not only to the ministry, but he first called him to be his son. And he says, Timothy, this is to what, this is what you were called to. And you made public confession of this. You, you, you gave evidence that you really believe this. And therefore he calls for him to take hold of eternal life. That idea means grab hold of what is really important. The present tense means to grab a hold continually of it. So it's not just eternal life like in the future. The idea is you grab a hold of it now. Like what Paul talks about in Colossians when he says you are to set your mind on things that are above. He says, seek those things which are above where Christ is. That Timothy is to live with an eternal mindset, to grab a hold of eternal life. Take hold of it and live through it. And then fifth and finally, he is to serve faithfully. So Paul concludes this command series of imperatives with a solemn charge. Notice the depth and the formality even of what he cites here. He says, I charge you, verse 13, in the presence of God. Notice, he's he's putting some formal um, hooks in this thing. I, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. God's got power here. And of Christ Jesus who, in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice what he calls him to do here. He calls him to serve faithfully. The appear, the appeal rather, is to Timothy, stay in this fight over the long haul. He says, keep this commandment. What commandment? The commandment to watch himself and his doctrine closely. To remember that the aim of his charge is love that comes out of a pure heart and a good conscience. He's to serve faithfully over a long time. How many of you, by a show of hands, are over 60 years old? Just raise your hand just a second. Okay, good. Now put it back down. 
for those of you who just raise your hand, I want you to know something. You play a very, very, very important role in this church. You help show people behind you that Christianity is meant to be not a short-distance sprint, but a long-distance marathon. To show people what marriage looks like over 50 and 60 years. To show us what it looks like to bury a husband or a wife, to fight through cancer, and to have an indomitable joy, although the years have been difficult and hard. This church, the church, needs you. So if you wonder, what is my role? Your role is to be faithful all the way to the end. To finish strong, to be godly, and to be one of those old men or women who run the race to the very, very end. In the midst of a culture that looks for answers in nanoseconds and lightning-fast fixes, The Bible calls all of us to a lifetime of faithfulness. So that's what what Timothy is called to do. Who he is, he's a man of God. What he's called to do, he's got five imperatives. And then here's the final thing. Here's what Timothy is supposed to live for, and it's beautiful. He's to live for the glory of God. You see, the the motivator here, Paul, Paul ends in a rhetorical flourish. He he ends with a doxology that is filled with a powerful reminder, not only of, of what Timothy is to love, but at the end of the day, what he is to look and long for, namely, the glory of God. Remember this last comment. He says, Timothy, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, keep enduring because one day listen to this one day jesus is going to come back and make everything right he's, he's going to take it all he's going to fix everything all the injustices i saw a lot of injustice in the last five days i saw a country just ripped apart because of the evil of what wicked people can do and horrible things and, and you know one day jesus is going to make it all right and so you, you you're faithful knowing that one day Jesus is going to appear and he's ultimately going to settle all of this. And then he ends with this beautiful crescendo. Look at verse 15. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I mean, it makes you just want to go, yes! Yes! So, it's the press across the finish line. And, And what is that? It is the glory of God. That's what the finish line looks like. It's the glory of God. And he describes God as being invincible. The blessed and only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. That he is invincible. So when Paul talks about the glory of God, he reminds Timothy that God is beyond all interference by earthly powers. No human ruler can challenge his authority. That God cannot be defeated. In other words, he is unstoppable. And this is the glory of God. The glory of God is unstoppable. Satan himself cannot stop the glory of God. He's invincible. Secondly, immortal. It says, he who alone has immortality, meaning that God is not subject to the limitations of death or space or time. That God never had a beginning. There was no source for him. He just is. Everything exists within him. He is immortal as well as invincible. He is inaccessible. 
It says, He who dwells in unapproachable light, meaning he is beyond the reaches of sinful people. Evil cannot touch him. It can't enter into his presence. He is absolutely holy. And in the end of the day, God's holiness is the defining characteristic of him that makes him so other and invisible. No one has ever seen or can see. He is beyond human sight and even human comprehension. God is completely otherworldly. The closest we've come to see Him is Jesus. And yet He's invisible. In other words, He's not like you. He's not like me. So He's invincible, immortal, inaccessible, and invisible. And when you consider this, when you consider what He is like, you just can't help but agreeing with Paul to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You see, friends, this isn't just the greatest thing in the universe. This is the greatest thing to live for. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means that because of God's holiness and because of your sin, Jesus comes, dies on a cross so you can be reconciled, and then you can see the beauty of God's glory and His grace expressed through Christ to you. It means that now, as a Christian, you know who you are, you know what you're commanded to do, and you know what you live for. You don't live for yourself, you live for the glory of this one who redeemed you and saved you when you had no hope apart from him. And this invincible, immortal, inaccessible, and invisible God condescended to you, and he loves you, and he gives you mission and purpose. And when you understand this, when the glory of God captures your heart, it will propel you into hard ministries dealing with hard people because nothing helps our endurance like knowing that I am a forgiven son or daughter of God. God is able to work in and through me. And the beauty is that God's glory eclipses the pain and the difficulties that we face in life. Hope is not that your circumstances are going to change. Because sometimes people don't get better. Oh, they do get healed. Sometimes, but sometimes not. Sometimes people, they die. The cancer doesn't go away. The relationships problems are never fixed. So what do you do with that? You know that even in the midst of the pain, you live for the glory of this immortal, invisible, inaccessible, and invisible God. You live for the glory of God, and the majesty of who He is is the thing that eclipses the pain and difficulties that we deal with. So how do you fight What is the sign that we slap before we go out on the game? What what is the last charge that we say before we go out and do our fight? It is the beauty of the glory of God. That at the end of the day, even your death can glorify God. So the reality is what's, and I've said this before, so what's the worst that they could do? They could kill you. Even that glorifies God. So it's still a win. It's what the psalmist said In Psalm 27, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? Why does he want to be there? Here's why. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. It is the glory of God that becomes the compelling motivation to fight the good fight of faith. Why do you get back in with hard people? Why do you deal with difficult circumstances? Why do you not quit? Why do you keep fighting temptation? Why do you keep going? Why do you fight, 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 fight all the way to your grave? Why? Because the glory of God demands it. That's why. He's glorious and beautiful and majestic and He's worth everything that you'd ever give Him. That's why. 
So you fight by faith by living for one thing and one thing alone, that you live for the glory of God. So fight. Fight the fight of faith for His glory. Lord, thank You that this text reminds us of the compelling calling that is on us. Thank You for this reminder that we are called to endure all the way to the end. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here today who some of them are in a major, major fight. And I pray that you would empower them to live for the glory of the one who is invincible and immortal and inaccessible and invisible. To him, to you, be honor and eternal dominion. God, that they would today feel the beauty of what it means to live for that calling. And for those today who may not know you and are here today and suddenly now there's this huge gap between what we've talked about and where their experience has got today, bring them to faith in Christ. Thank you, Father, that you have placed within our hearts a longing for one thing, to gaze upon your beauty. So thank you for your word. And bless it, we pray, to our hearts. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you are in a fight that's really, it's a serious fight today. And our folks up here, our prayer team, they're here to pray for you. If you need someone just to pray over you, strengthen and help you, they're here to love, encourage, and bless you today. So they're here to serve you. So please come up afterwards. Let these folks pray for you, all right? Coach Parks, great to be back today. I love you. Thanks for coming today. God bless you.